Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Colonization during the 1700s in Africa was rampant, violent, and a complete violation of indigenous people. For those that survived the disruption of Europeans stealing and trading them, those that were captured were to be used and exploited as seen fit by the invading Europeans. It was a brutal and vicious time, disguised under a thin veil of capitalism, which allowed the people involved to turn a blind eye to the horrors they were inflicting upon their fellow man. For the Europeans, there was one particular group of indigenous people that were fascinating to them, particularly the women as they fetishised their bodies, which didn't resemble the European women they were used to. The Khoikhoi from South Africa were known by the Europeans for having anatomy that was unusual and fascinating, and given half the chance, people in Europe would pay to come and see them. Couple this with slavery, a lack of bodily autonomy and a penchant for exploitation, and you have the unsavoury recipe for today's tale. This time on Macabre London we'll be uncovering the story of Sarah Bartman, the Hottentot Venus. and welcome back to another episode of Macabre London. I'm Nikki Druce, your host with The Silent G, and today I'll be taking you on a journey down another of London's grimy back streets to uncover a macabre tale from the city's past. However, before we get into today's episode, if you're new here and you want to see more videos where we deep dive into some lesser-known historic tales from London's past, then please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show and want it to continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. In today's episode, we're going to be learning the story of Sarah, or Sarki Barman. And sorry for the spoiler alert, 
this is not going to be a nice tale and it definitely doesn't end well. There will be discussions of SA, racial exploitation and abuse, so here is your warning if you want out. During the late 1700s, there was a penchant for observing the strange and unusual in a voyeuristic way. Everything was about spectacle, and those that stood out as different were exploited and used for financial gain. With the world starting to open up to travel and it becoming easier to move people around the globe, people in Europe and North America began bringing people to those places from far-off lands. This generally took the form of slavery, but it also spread to displaying people of colour in abhorrent human zoos, and depressingly enough, these would go on even up until the late 1950s. The display of these imported people came with an opportunity to charge interested white people a pretty penny to see them in mocked-up displays where they would be kept behind fences and told to carry out their cultural heritage for people to gawp at. This would include doing traditional dances, basket weaving and even wrestling just to entertain the people that watched them. Of course, the people on display were not rewarded with much or, for that matter, any of the profits that were being made from their exploitation and often due to the exposure to germs from the paying punters which they hadn't encountered before, they often died of diseases such as smallpox, TB and the flu. Strangely and horrifyingly enough, human zoos were something that only originated toward the mid to late 1800s as infrastructure and the Industrial Revolution took hold. This made the transportation of people much easier and the building of such events as the World's Fair, which had a whole section dedicated to such a vile pastime, possible. Before the advent of the mass display and exploitation of people from around the world, there were individuals who were manipulated into a life of being on display. Freak shows would display a handful of people who had something unique about them and charge punters money to get in. These profits would be split, usually unfairly, with the performers and the troops would travel around. Even as far back as the early 1600s, a pair of conjoined twins, Lazarus and Joanna's Baptista Colorado, toured around Europe for people to pay to gawp at. Lazarus and Joanna's were Italian and were displayed as people wanted to see Lazarus's so-called parasitic twin, which hung from his chest. Lazarus would walk and talk, but Joanna's only moved if disturbed by using certain pressure points on his body. Lazarus would stand displaying his twin for people to look at, but when he wasn't on show, he would cover Joanna's with a cloak to protect him and to avoid the constant gawping and questioning. Lazarus had a fairly normal life, a family which consisted of several children who didn't inherit their father's condition. However, for reasons unknown, Lazarus murdered a man, but wasn't given the usual death sentence, as this would also kill his brother. It's unknown how the pair eventually died, but they disappeared from public records in the mid-1600s. The spectacle of the conjoined twins would have been mirrored in many European towns, with individuals being displayed for financial gain by often nefarious men disguising themselves as doctors so they could talk about their patient's affliction with some authority. However, these men were usually quack doctors who had failed at other avenues and, as such, became elevated grifters making a quick buck from the people they chose to exploit, managing their chosen performer. As if things weren't already grim enough... Many women who were shown off as freaks alongside performing and dancing for men often had their bodies sold to them as well. This sadly meant that they contracted STDs, 
some of which were deadly, but on the upside, they also spread them around. So those men got what they deserved, in my opinion. As colonialism in all its horribleness was progressing, the white men who travelled to Africa began spreading rumours back home about the women that lived there. They began to tell people that black African women were far more promiscuous than the white European women they were used to at home, referring to them as savages. As the rumours started to spread, white men wanted to have black African women imported to Europe so they could see for themselves, and so began a sad and abhorrent stream of trafficking that would continue for a number of years. One particular group in South Africa, known as the Khoikhoi, garnered special interest from colonialists, and they fetishised them for their bodies. The Khoikhoi women had bodies that the colonists referred to as primitive. They had steatopagia, an accumulation of fatty tissues in the buttock region, which caused them to have pronounced posteriors and other unique characteristics in their reproductive organs. For these reasons, the Khoikhoi women became highly sought after and fetishised, and it wasn't long before the colonists began to see the pound signs in their eyes, and a plan began to form. With the intention of finding exotic-looking women, one doctor, Alexander Dunlop, started asking questions of Dutch colonists in Africa to see if they could connect him to the women of the Khoikhoi, and it wasn't long before his request was answered he was introduced to a Khoikhoi woman named Sartke Barman. However, to understand how we got to this point, we first need to head back to the origins of the colonisation of the Khoikhoi people. In 1790, Europeans moved into South Africa, around the time Sartke was born. The indigenous people were forced out by Dutch colonialism, which entirely disrupted their way of life, decimating their culture and identity. The colonists pushed out the indigenous men in the town and if they refused to leave, they were threatened with violence. Any men that tried to return were shot at. The Khoikhoi were torn apart by the white invaders. They completely destroyed families. They considered their actions to be completely justifiable though, as to them, they were managing what they saw as a herd of animals and repurposing them in the same way men had done to cattle hundreds of years before. In fact, the colonists believed that they were actually improving the lives of the Khoikhoi. They were westernising the area they lived in, building housing and making it more like the European towns they came from. By doing this, they believed they were genuinely enhancing the existence of the indigenous people by providing jobs and dragging them kicking and screaming into capitalism. However, this wasn't unique to the Khoikhoi. All across Africa, white people were moving in and ruining the lives of the natives. Indigenous people who fought back against their oppressors were massacred. In fact, those that didn't fight back were also massacred, and surviving children were stolen by the Dutch people. Those who weren't shot at or murdered were captured and put into slavery, being forced to work on the farms of those that had killed their families or they were sold and shipped off to mainly Britain and Portugal, the two major exporters of enslaved people. In other parts of Africa, indigenous people became slave traders themselves, raiding coastal towns and capturing people to then sell them to the Europeans. The Khoikhoi people were subject to the same practices being traded and moved around from pillar to post, and were forced to carry out menial labour such as road building and becoming farmhands. 
The indigenous people, regardless of their gender or age, were exploited with no regard for their health or safety, and everyone was put to work. And it's here we pick back up with Sarki Bartman. Sarki, a Khoikhoi woman who had survived the invading Dutchman, had been sold to Peter Cesar, a farm owner who moved her to the Cape and put her to work. Sarki had lived almost her whole life under rule by the Dutch, and now, in 1810, and at 20 years old, she had got used to her situation and somewhat accepted her imprisoned fate. So when Peter's brother Henrik started telling him about a doctor who was looking for interesting-looking African women, Peter knew he had the perfect example in Sarki. Dr Alexander Dunlop was invited by Henrik to visit Peter's farm, and there he met Sarki. Alexander was initially interested in meeting Sarki as he had been told that the Khoikhoi women looked very different from the women he was used to in Europe, and he wanted to examine her with a view to putting her on display in England. Alexander decided that Sarki was an excellent example of the Khoikhoi. They even believed her to be a different species and spoke about her as such, with all the respect of farmers talking about trading animals at an auction. As Sarki was a slave, she didn't have a say in the matter of what happened next, and as such she was given to the men by Peter to do with as they wanted, in return for a cut of the money she made in England. In order to make Sarki compliant, it's likely the men told her they would give her great wealth if she went to England with them, but of course it didn't really matter too much if she did refuse to leave her homeland, as if she didn't want to go, they would have just taken her anyway. The manipulation technique was simply to try and make things a bit easier on themselves. However, the story goes that she was allegedly given a contract, written in English, which she didn't speak, let alone read, which she signed, saying that once she had earned some money in the UK, she could return to Africa. Understandably, this would have been appealing to Saki, as she had been enslaved her whole life, and this option, even though just a different form of slavery, would offer her something different. However, this meant leaving her family behind. Sarki by this time had had two children, but both of them died soon after birth, and perhaps the lure of moving away from her trauma may have been enticing. But at the end of the day, none of that really mattered, as even if she did refuse the offer from Henrik and Alexander, she would have eventually have been trafficked to England regardless. In March 1810, the trio went to England by boat, enduring a crossing which lasted three months. And during this time, Henrik and Alexander had time to plan their next move as to how to exhibit and market Sarki to make the most profit. To begin with, they had to change her name, so they stripped her of Sarki, the name she'd been given by the Dutch slave traders, and renamed her with the more English-sounding Sarah as God forbid anyone English had to pronounce a name which they hadn't encountered before. In London, the slave trade had been abolished four years earlier, in 1807, but this didn't mean that there weren't still slaves in London. It just meant that further trade was banned. Black servants worked for white households, and a number of these people were freed, allowing them to have their own lives without being owned. But, in all actuality... This was rare, and Sarki's arrival in London was a sign that the respect and rights for people of colour were entirely non-existent. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. After the three-month boat journey, the first thing Alexander and Henrik did on arrival in London was to take Sarki to the British Museum, where they spoke to the director of the Natural History Department, as this was before the department had expanded into its own museum. They tried to sell her to the curator, but he wasn't interested in their human cargo. He did, however, buy a giraffe pelt they'd imported with them. They were so certain that the museum would want Sargi as a living exhibition that when they received the knockback, Alexander in particular panicked and asked Henrik to buy him out of the deal. However, Henrik had a plan B, and decided that Sartgi would bring in a huge audience in the underbelly of central London. At the time, visual spectacles were all the rage, from giantesses through to ape men, tattooed men and women, and little people, amongst many others who were considered something to gawp at. The Georgians couldn't get enough of the strange and unusual, and many ordinary people were put on display as human spectacles, just because they had something slightly different about them. These freak shows acted as amusements in between the theatre shows and ballet, which were anything but highbrow. The whole area of the West End was gaudy and unabashed, and a place people could go to disappear for days on end, descending into its depraved back streets. As part of these freak shows, the exploitation of people of colour, particularly black Africans, was just a sad part of the show. Henrik figured Sarki could earn at least some temporary cash here for him and Alexander whilst they worked out what to do with her, so they put her on the stage. They called her the Hot and Top Venus and billed her as the top draw of the show. The term Hot and Top was used as this was the term the Dutch used to refer to the Koi Koi. Just to say, this term isn't acceptable nowadays, but as this is a recounting of the historical use of the word and used for context to explain the terminology at the time, I thought it was important to use it here. This is, however, the last time I will use the term during this episode. Sartgi was forced to dance on stage night after night for the white faces staring up at her in the crowd. Initially, she was told to dance nude, but she refused to do so, and so instead she wore a garment which covered her body but which was the same colour as her skin, so Henrik was appeased that her body was still being shown off. Sarki had traditional elements attached to her garment as well, including feathers and beads which would move when she danced, and she was told to perform dances she'd learned from her time in South Africa, and to do so for the waiting crowd. Sarki did this night after night, and sometimes several times during the day as well, and some nights on stage she pleaded with Henrik that she be allowed to stop dancing. 
On one particular evening, Saki was exhausted and on stage she stopped dancing. She began pointing to her neck and knees and crying as she was visibly in pain. Her handler, which was how Henrik was now managing the situation, making sure Saki was kept in check whilst on stage like a wild and unruly animal, stepped in to manage the situation. Seeing that she was in distress, the man didn't offer to help her or pull her off stage. Instead, he raised a bamboo cane, threatening her with violence, and forced her to continue the performance as tears streamed down her face, and she winced with every movement. This cruelty didn't go unnoticed, as that evening a journalist from the Times happened to be in the audience, and wrote the following day in the paper about the vile undertaking he'd witnessed on stage, and how he'd watched dumbstruck at this abuse happening right in front of his eyes. It had only been a short while that Bartman had been in the country, but luckily people started to speak out about her mistreatment and word started to spread. This led to a chain reaction which would highlight this abhorrent situation and hopefully lead to her getting some help. The African institution were opposed to Sarah's apparent slavery and just a few months after she had arrived in London in 1810, they went to the court of the King's Bench as they believed she was under coercion to perform and wanted her to either be set free or to give her assistance to be able to return to the Khoikhoi. Sarah had to be interviewed in Dutch as she did know how to speak the language of her captors back in South Africa, but she didn't speak English. Sarah in court said that contrary to what her performance on stage on the reported night of abuse showed, that actually she was happy and wished to stay in England as she had freedom of some sorts. She said she felt privileged as she had waitstaff which looked after her needs and she was allowed to go out on Sundays on her own, which was very liberating. However, the apparent agreement and cooperation from Sarah may have not been under her free will. Instead, it was believed that she had been coerced by Henrik, who, before the trial, calmly explained to her that if she was to return to South Africa, she would only have two options – either be sold back into slavery or she would have to return to the poverty of the Khoikhoi where she would more than likely be murdered or die from starvation. It was heavy manipulation on Henrik's behalf and the tactic worked. Sarah was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Sarah attended court for just three hours and no one who was to do with her performances was allowed to enter the court while she was being questioned. Sarah was ruled to be under no duress to stay in England, but the magistrate was not convinced her contract was worth the paper it was written on, but as it was a document that was outside of his jurisdiction, he couldn't help Saki negotiate a better deal, but put the seed in her mind that she should try. For all intents and purposes, the court was pleased that Sarah was as happy as she could be, even remarking that her clothes were made of good quality silk and that she seemed perfectly fit and healthy. The case was brought to a close when the judge, who had got word that Sarki had been told she'd earn more if she performed nude, said that Sarah, from now on, must be suitably clothed when exhibited on stage, and if she wasn't, her keepers would be in trouble with the law. After the initial case, Sarah's original contract was negotiated, and she was now entitled to 50% of the profit she earned for Henrik, but the contract was decidedly dodgy, and so was her manager leaving it up to his interpretation of whether she was to be paid the full amount or not. 
The African institution were obviously dismayed at the final ruling of the case, but there wasn't much else they could do, as Sarah said she was doing okay. After the court case, and with the integrity of Henrik's business having been questioned, he decided to go underground, making things much worse for Sarki. As people stopped going to see her perform from a moral standpoint, the profits began to dip. It's at this time it's believed that Henrik, now desperate for money, decided he would degrade Sarki further by telling her she would now be selling her body to curious men to do with as they wanted, or else she would be sent back home where things would be much, much worse. For the next four years, Sarah was kept as a plaything for those that wanted to pay to be with her in between doing underground dancing shows and private parties for the rich, and she was exploited at every turn. As Sarki was exposed to more and more abuse, she began seeking relief in substances and began drinking and smoking to numb the pain of her existence. Henrik made Sarki tour the UK for a short while, but it was obvious that interest in the Venus was starting to dwindle. She was then shipped over to France, and just like that, Sarah was allowed above ground again and put back on the stage. In France, slavery was sadly still legal, and a koi woman had never been seen before in the country. And yet again, Sarki was back to being a sideshow for people to gawp at. With the uptick in interest, Henrik took this opportunity to unburden himself of the woman he betrayed and abused for the last four years, and with no regard for her welfare or safety, he sold her to an animal trainer. Just like that, Henrik abandoned Sarki, negating the contract that she signed many years ago that stated she would be allowed to return home after six years of work. Things were now absolutely awful for Sarki. She had gone from at least some form of human existence, even though it was full of abuse and violence, to now being sold to someone who put her in a cage. Sarki was put on display by her new captor as part of a menagerie and kept in a cage for 12 hours a day at the Palais Royal. After her day job of being stuck in the cage, she was then hired out to parties where she would be forced to perform and again sold to men for them to do with her as they liked. Georges Cuvier, a French anatomist, witnessed Sarki at one of these events and asked to sketch her so he could prove she was a missing link between apes and humans, which was a theory he was exploring. The request was something that Sarki wouldn't be paid for, and having had enough of everybody's bullshit at this point, she refused to pose naked for him, and shockingly, he actually conceded to her disdain at his proposition, which was probably one of the only times Sarah was allowed to have bodily autonomy whilst in Europe. As time passed by, Sarki was turning more and more to alcohol to help her with her vicious and inhumane life, and it didn't take long for these to turn into an addiction, which began to ravage her body, along with more than likely undiagnosed STDs, which had been given to her by the men which took advantage of her. In the winter of 1815, Sarki passed away in Paris after a rapid three-day illness, at the age of just 25. No death certificate was issued for her, and so no cause of death has ever been produced. But due to the presence of rashes on her body, it's presumed she succumbed to syphilis given to her by the men that abused her, 
and alcoholism, which she resorted to as a coping mechanism to mentally escape from her situation. As word got out that Sartre had passed, Cuvier, the French anatomist Sarah had denied in life, now wanted her body. Even in death, Sartre was denied consent. Cuvier now had her corpse, and he could do with it as he wished. He made a plaster cast of her body so he could immortalise her form. He preserved her skeleton, boiling away her flesh in order to do so, but not content with this entire desecration of her corpse, he kept bits of it which he thought would be useful to study in the future, such as her brain and genitals. Instead of being given a final resting place, Sartre was then put on display in the Museum of Man in Paris, where she would remain for the next 159 years. It took until 1974 for Sarah's body to be taken off display due to the understandable outrage from the public at her continued exploitation, even that long after her death. It then took a further 28 years for Sartre to finally receive the burial she deserved. In 2002, Nelson Mandela, the former South African president, stepped in and demanded Sartre's body be returned to her native South Africa so she could be buried on her home soil. The six years Sartre had been promised to be away from her home by Henrik when she originally left Africa ended up turning into almost 200. The abuse and horror Sartre underwent with the promise of a better life in Europe left a woman helpless under the powers of those that exploited her at every turn, with a thinly veiled argument that what she was getting in return in terms of riches and an enhanced lifestyle was worth it eventually causing her to pass away as a result of her neglect and mistreatment, which didn't just end at her death. Sartre leaves behind a powerful legacy and an incredibly poignant story, in which I think we can all agree is just absolutely heartbreaking. Thanks for joining me for this episode. After all of that, I don't really feel like doing my usual outro, so I'm just going to say please subscribe to the show if you want more episodes. Consider joining my Patreon to help me make more episodes like these amazing executive Patreon producers, Amy, Barry, Christina, Jess, Kate, Kevin, Mary, Sam, Sarah and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. I couldn't do what I do and share these worthwhile stories without the support of Patreon, so please consider giving it a look if you're able to. Keep your eyes on my social media channels next week and on here for the grand reveal of the exciting announcement I've been teasing you with, and I promise you won't be disappointed if you do. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce, and I'll see you ghouls next time. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.